You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Molly, now watch your head. The ceiling here is kind of low. Ow! It is low. Yeah, well, it opens up a bit farther back. Is this gravel on the ground that I'm be, walking on? Yeah, well, it that? might be cat litter. We stored some bags down here. Maybe maybe an animal got into it. I didn't it. know you had a cat. Well, I don't, but I did 15 years ago. <laughs> okay, so you haven't been down here in a while. Well, you know how these storage spaces are. I mean, you throw a lot of stuff down here, and hey, is that my battery-operated pasta maker over there? Let me see if it still turns on. Hardly see. Whoa, ah. Hey, it still oh. works. Yeah, well, I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Hang on, how do you turn this off? Ah. Are We Alone is in a tight spot, sorting through scientific potpourri of objects. And, and Seth, is that a segue? Uh, you actually bought one of those? Yeah, no, that's just a lawnmower, Molly. <laughs> well, we're finding lots of inspiration today. We're in Seth's crawl space below his house, looking for what, an old computer or something? Well, or not just an old computer, Molly, but my MSI 8080. That was one of the first personal computers. It's in mint condition, and I want to donate it to the Computer History Museum here in Mountain View. You know, Silicon Valley is where the computer revolution all happened. I knew that. All right. Well, I I think my computer's down here somewhere. I hope it's not in the attic. You don't remember where it is? I mean, I can picture my attic actually very, very clearly because I have this photographic memory. Yeah, you do? Yeah, yeah. So the fondue maker in the attic is right next to the 1980s Barbie townhouse. Actually probably worth a lot right now. This is doubtful that photographic memory exists. Of course it exists. Nope. The only photographic memory there is is the memories on these old Kodachrome slides. Oh, look at these. Yeah, these are pictures of my first trip to Europe. That's pretty nice, Seth. That's you wearing a Nehru jacket? Yep. <laughs> so are you sure about this photographic memory thing? Let's put yep, these away. I am. I am. Because I spoke with neuroscientist Larry Squire. He's done a lot of work looking at the structure of human memory at the University of California School of Medicine. Hey, can you hand me that flashlight? Yeah. Okay. And when Sandra Chung was helping us research stuff that week, she claimed to have once had a photographic memory. So... We thought we'd run that by Dr. Squire. Great. He'll prove I'm right about photographic memory. Dr. Squire, I want to begin by asking you whether photographic memory exists or not. But to do that, I'm going to let our assistant producer, Sandra Chung, begin by describing for you her experience at a young age. Is that all right with you? Yes. Okay. Well, Sandra, let's hear it. Hi, Dr. Squire. I'm not really sure if it's photographic memory, but when I was younger, um, up till I was about 10, if I needed to look up the answer to a question, either during a test or when I was doing, say, a workbook problem, I could literally scan through the book in my mind, and I could see the whole page. I could see where all the pictures were, and I could see the words on the page, and I could jump right to the part where the answer was and quote it almost verbatim. So I was just sort of wondering what might explain that ability. Well, it sounds like a very good memory. Uh, (laughs) I think the view that the field has come to is that 
when we use the term photographic memory, we're really describing a very good memory rather than something that's qualitatively special or that represents a new kind of mechanism. I mean, it's not photographic literally in the sense that one doesn't stare into space and read the words backwards. And one is not literally looking at a picture where one could read all the lines backwards from the page. But people who have these very good memories are especially good. They notice the fact that they are very good spatially. They can remember where on the page an item was. They can remember uh, what, whether it was the right or the left, and left or right column, top or bottom, and so on. So people who have these good memories, as by virtue of paying attention, by virtue of being interested in the material, by virtue of being absorbed in the material, they do often have very good retentive memory for what they've encountered, and especially it seems to have this spatial feature. Well, I guess I am pretty good spatially. I mean, I went to engineering school, but I don't seem to be able to do it as well as I used to be able to. Is there any reason why it wouldn't be as strong as I get older or if it would get worse? Well, one does usually hear these reports in young children, and young children are extraordinary in their ability to remember things by rote, especially if they don't have to use strategic search or executive functions to find things. If they're just cued by a page or cued by a, a book, it all comes rolling back. And as we get older, we're just not as good as that. Maybe because we begin to engage strategy more and we begin to engage organizational strategies and begin to categorize the material, what you're doing then is abstracting meaning from the material rather than just simply taking in the words. So those details of the material that allow one to have a rote memory tend to fade away because you're using other strategies. Ah, I see. Thanks, Dr. Squire. Well, so, Dr. Squire, what Sandra described to me is what I've heard from other people. I had a, a, a colleague who claimed to have photographic memory, and it was true. You could ask him about, I don't know, I would ask him occasionally about some star. Hey, you know, Dr. Van Voorden, what do you know about Phi 2 Orionis? He would, he would tell me the coordinates, the, you know, the, the magnitudes. He had a whole list of things he could just read out of his brain, and I always imagine that he was seeing the page of the catalog in front of him, but, but that's not the way it works. That's right. No, it's much more organizational and abstracted than that. I mean, if you could literally see the page, you'd be able to read it backwards, and that's not the way that it works. But you know, people who are extremely interested in a certain topic or have what we might even call expertise about a certain topic are very capable and facile at storing away materials related to that material with limited exposure to it. I assume that there's no structural difference uh, in the brains of people who have good memories. Is, is that true? Well, one doesn't know. I mean, now you're talking about details that were beyond what we can really measure. So the simple answer is no. I mean, there's no overall structural differences. One doesn't see differences in the brain as if one looks at magnetic resonance images. But there's going to be something different. I mean, it's being done by the brain. So there's going to be some differences in connectivity and in what areas tend to be active. But it would be at a very subtle level and not something that we could really get our hands on at this point at all. Many people do crave better memory. Uh, after all, there are plenty of commercial products out there which at least claim to be able to improve your memory. Uh, but what if we could really do that? I mean, you know, in a way that maybe it involves implantable chips or something like in your brain. What would be the consequence if our brains had total recall? Well, it would be pretty unfortunate. I mean, the key concept here is that a better memory is not necessarily an optimal memory. Our memories are designed to abstract and to generalize and to get at the gist of what we're experiencing, not to remember the literal details and all the details of what we encounter. The fact that we do forget the details is what makes it possible to abstract meaning and, and get at the gist. So, you know, in famous experiments, for example, you can read people's sentences that are either in the active or the passive voice, and then later ask 
two questions of the people. You can ask for what the meaning of the, the sentences were, and you can ask them later which voice it was in, active or passive. And people are very good at remembering the meaning of the sentences they heard recently. But they perform very poorly when they're actually asked to reconstruct what grammatical construction was used to convey the sentence. Those things drop away. And there's cases in the literature of people who do have extraordinary memories, and generally it's an unfortunate kind of circumstance. Uh, the most famous case of all was studied by Luria in Moscow, a patient who was cursed, as it were, by having a memory that retained all details. And this individual said that it was a serious drawbacks to this. This person really had trouble with words and phrases that have different meanings in different contexts. Metaphor and poetry were beyond him. His memory was so cluttered with detail that he couldn't make use of the kind of organization that we ordinarily use to focus on the regularities among related experiences. He said that he had trouble recognizing people's voices over the telephone because people's voices changed so much during the day that he couldn't make the connection from one voice to the next. He had detailed sensory responses to all the words, and so if things were read too fast, he couldn't understand the meaning of what was being read because he was so overwhelmed by images. So what this all added up to was an individual who was handicapped by the fact that he had a memory that was totally retentive. It sounds to me like, uh, on the basis of what you've described, that in most cases what our brains do is they, they have some sort of compression scheme. They take all these words, whether they're printed or verbal words, and they extract the, the meaning out of this, and they store the meaning, and all the symbols are kind of gone. That's right. So it doesn't matter whether the words are printed in red or green. You know, we get the meaning of the word, but we let ourselves forget the details in which it's presented. I mean, in fact, there's a familiar phenomenon that if one goes to see a film in the movie theater, years later, one might have trouble remembering whether the film was presented in subtitles or in words, but nevertheless remember something about the movie. Well, finally, Dr. Squire, I'd be curious to have your thoughts about what it means to increasingly rely on computers for our memory. I mean, the possibility that with storage getting cheaper every week, it seems, you know, eventually we'll be able to put everything into memory that isn't fallible, memory that uh, we can presumably access in some way or other. You know, is this just going to clutter up our lives the way it would if we could remember it with our soft, squishy brains? No, I mean, I, th I think it's just going to be a help. I mean, we already write things down. We have telephone books. We have uh, books we carry around with us, and those books are computers instead of books, so that just makes it a little bit easier to operate on. But we're wanting to store away the details and these numbers and account numbers and passwords and all these things that really we're not so good at remembering anyway. That's not our specialty. Our specialty is getting the gist of knowing that we have a bank and knowing where the bank is and knowing the procedures that we need to get there and, and then remembering the gist of the things that we encounter in our lives, of the things that are important to us and the emotional meanings and the, the friendships and the categories that we live in. The specific details, the specific words, the numbers and so on are things that we gratefully can relegate to books or computers. Dr. Larry Squire, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Now, Seth, where did you say that Larry Squire studied memory? At the University of California School of Medicine. Oh, yeah. he, he's also a scientist at the VA Medical Center in San Diego. Right. Careful of those exposed joists, Molly. Looks like we can stand or at least crouch just a little bit higher right over here. Yep. Well, now we know where your fiberglass insulation collection was hiding. Seth, you know, you really should show that off more. That's quite impressive. Well, I've been meaning to do that. You know, cold air blows through here. Hey, 
That's not the only thing. Look look at that. There's some small plants down oh, here. Yeah. It looks, kind of looks like grass. I don't yeah, know. and that little patch of spilled potting soil. You know, plants are amazing because they'll sprout up anywhere if you give them a chance. Well, these plants wouldn't even be here if it weren't for the potting soil. Maybe I really should get rid of it and sweep it out. Why? You owe a lot to that little plant, Seth. You and I wouldn't even be here if it weren't for its ancestors. You know, I was talking to the science writer Oliver Morton about this and about how plants are the real power behind the planet. Well, that sounds like real green power to me. So, Oliver, you're here to talk about plants. That's right. Okay, so I want you to hang on. I brought you something. Excellent. Which one of these would you... Him, or possibly her. You've brought me a plant that I cannot identify because I'm not actually very good with plants. I'm pretty good with what plants do. It looks a little bit like an ornamental Japanese lily of some sort, but I know it's not that. <laughs> well, what I'm is it? you know more than I do. I actually don't know what it is. I just grabbed a plant off a um, colleague's desk, and I've set it now on your desk. I, I brought one, too, for myself. You see this one? Yours is very nice. Yours is very nice. Yours is much more rustly. Mine's more floppy. I think it's because it's so dry. Anyway, so I thought that as we discussed plants, it would be nice to have plants right in front of us. Because according to you, we should really admire what it is that they're able to do in those green leaves. What is it that they're doing? Well, we absolutely should, because as you say, the green is the important thing. And this is how we know that they are plants. And what they're doing is photosynthesis. And that sounds technical and to some extent um, rather obscure. But it's the single most important thing going on on the planet. Because if you don't have photosynthesis, you don't have oxygen in the air, you don't have a carbon cycle, everything would run down and be dull. You can have life on a planet without photosynthesis, you just can't have any fun. Okay, so photosynthesis is a, is a chemical reaction. So if I look at these leaves here on this plant, what is it doing when the sun's rays hit this plant? What's happening? What exactly is the chemical reaction that happens in those leaves? What's happening is that the, the sunlight will be absorbed by chlorophyll in the leaves, which is a pigment. And this is the one of the really clever bits. The chlorophyll passes the energy around. Uh, it's like a frog jumping around a lily pad. These little packets of energy jump around these pads of chlorophyll until they get into what's called a reaction center um, or a photosystem in fact in a plant and at that point they do something which is pretty much impossible for any other creature on earth they split a water molecule into its constituent atoms and this is as far as we know a biochemical trick that has only ever been invented once on the planet so and they're splitting it into hydrogen and into oxygen. They're splitting it into hydrogen, into oxygen, and into electrons. And they then pass the electrons down what's called an electron transfer chain to get some energy out of them. And then they use the hydrogen and the energy from the electrons and some carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And by adding the hydrogen to the carbon dioxide in a rather clever way, they make carbohydrates, which is what the plant itself is made of. They make sugar, basically. So that's glucose. Glucose is normally the the principal sugar, yeah. Mm -hmm. And plus a little bit of oxygen is left over. No, the oxygen you see doesn't. Go, the oxygen is. This is the wonderful thing about it. This is why this this is why it's all such fun. The oxygen is a byproduct. The oxygen isn't isn't used in the making of the in the making of the of the glucose. For the plant, the oxygen is just something that happens when you pull apart water molecules to get hydrogen and electrons. And you know, plants now do use oxygen, but when the when this process first evolved in bacteria something like three billion years ago, they would have wanted to get rid of that oxygen quite quickly. It's dangerous stuff. Now, outside, these plants do pretty well, or at least when they're near the windows and they have sunlight. In here, you know, all we have are these lamps. If I put this plant under this lamp, this lamp that's actually quite hot, mm -hmm. so there's energy there because it's mm -hmm. very hot, 
Can it do the same thing? Can it yeah, do photosynthesis? It can. It can. Uh, it doesn't discriminate wherever it gets its light from. It will be able to photosynthesize. It just won't be able to do so much because bright sunlight is far, far brighter than uh, than an angle poised lamp like this. But oh, it's a nice idea. I'm sorry. Did bright. I put yeah. that? Yeah. I was actually trying to shine that light on the plant <laughs> because you were making me feel guilty about the fact that it wasn't getting any light. But uh, but by and large, you know, plants are fairly adapted to night and winter. They they don't crave light all the time, but they make use of any light that they get. So now we were talking. You were talking about the chlorophyll, which is why these plants' leaves are green. And chlorophyll and chloroplast. What is the difference? Ah, chloroplast is the little organ within the plant cell where all this goes on. Chloro, being Greek for color, it refers to both of them. The chlorophyll is what gives the chloroplast its color because the chlorophyll looks green to us. But the chloroplast is this little organ inside the uh, inside each of the plant cells. In fact, there are many of them inside the plant cells. And it's set up to do the transfer of electrons and to keep the hydrogen ions from all reacting with things in, in inappropriate times and places. It's a neatly structured little creation. And it's actually all the chloroplasts and all the plants that you see are all descended from bacteria that were among the bacteria who first developed this wonderfully neat trick of photosynthesis. The cyanobacteria. They were cyanobacteria, and they... Um, which just means that they were kind of bluey, greeny color. But the, the cyanobacteria, at some point, probably about two billion years ago, some cyanobacteria got engulfed by a larger predatory cell. And in some way that's not fully understood, they decided that they'd stop the eating process halfway through. And rather than just digest the cyanobacteria, they instead sort of like, domesticated them and the cyanobacteria just sat there in the other cell making sugar and the cell thought well this is good and it turned out to be an arrangement that worked rather well for both of them. Is that how plants evolved? That's how that's how plant cells first evolved yeah. So just for the record though the plants weren't the first to photosynthesize they were bacteria. Were the bacteria first. did they the get the credit. Oh back yeah and indeed there were bacteria photosynthesizing before the cyanobacteria came along. The cyanobacteria the their great contribution is that the cyanobacteria were the ones who learned how to do that trick of splitting water to make oxygen. That other bacteria do photosynthesis in other ways. All you need for photosynthesis is sunlight and a source of electrons. The thing that cyanobacteria have is that by using water as a source of electrons, they've got the most available thing on the planet. So I want to come back to these plants here, but I have some other questions about their ancestors, uh, which would have been about, what, 3.5 billion years ago? 3.7? Uh, the cyanobacteria, we don't know when they started. Certainly they had arrived by 2.5 billion years ago. We know that very well because at 2.5 billion years ago, if you actually just look at the rocks of the planet, you see all sorts of chemical indicators that something strange has happened, and oh. that strange thing is oxygen. The point that I want to make about oxygen, which mm -hmm. is interesting, is that plants gave it off as a byproduct, but animals learned how to use it. How did that happen? Because what they ultimately did was turn what was a liability into something very positive that gave them a great boost of energy. And we, we don't know quite how that... I mean, there were, would have been sources of oxygen available before before photosynthesis. So the, you, you'd get some made by ultraviolet light and things like that. So creatures had some ways of coping with it, but it's actually... Inside the cells, what's going on in our cells, and indeed in our in the plant cells as well. Um, our cells as animals. Our cells as animals. Is a process very like the electron transfer process in plants, but going the other way. And it's one in which you end up stripping electrons off molecules that we would call food and passing them along these electron transfer chains, getting energy out, and ending up dumping them on oxygen. 
and that's what that's what we do. Um, and so we we get the energy back that the plants used to split the water in the first place. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Talking about this idea of of chlorophyll, maybe not being our photosynthesis, not being a great energy provider. So when you compare animals and plants, animals are running around. You know, they're zipping here and there, and squirrels are zipping here and there. Plants, as witnessed by the two sitting here on the desk, are not running around at all. Plants don't do much at they, all. They don't, and that's one of, partly because they don't have the energy to do much. So they have a very, very different sort of like evolutionary strategy to animals. They don't, so for a plant, defense is a matter of being a bit poisonous, being a bit hard to eat competition is a matter of trying to be a bit higher up than the plant next door so that you get a bit more sunlight. Or you can turn it the other way around. I mean, some plants actually get off on burning because they know that if they um, help the ecosystem burn, then their seeds will grow faster than anyone else's and they'll get a leg up in the next generation. I feel like this plant is winning just by staring me down. They are very patient. So it's going to wear me down. It'll okay. wear you down, but it will keep the air fresh while it does it. <laughs> but so this is why you don't see animals covered with chlorophyll, because wouldn't that be nice? Squirrels wouldn't have to run around quite as far, or maybe they would get more bang for their buck because they're running around, they're outside. They could be converting all that sun's energy into more energy for them. There are a few, but um, but by and large, it's much more sensible if you're a squirrel to take all the energy that oak trees have stored up in acorns and eat that. Um, but well, there Excuse are... me, when you say there are a few, there are not a few squirrels running around. No, there are no there are no photosynthetic squirrels, mm-hmm. but there are there are sloths. Some sloths have a lot of green algae growing in their um, fur. I don't know if they eat that algae, I've, but I've always assumed that they do. I think um, there's an ointment for that that you can pick up. <laughs> and there are also some sort of like marine invertebrates tend to take up algae within themselves and use their energy. And of course, the other thing that you see around the place are lichen. And lichen are sort of like mushroom type things that have photos that, that have taken algae on board and are, and are living in a symbiosis. But again, I mean, in terms of leading a truly active life, this is not something that lichen do. Sea squirts and things are not terribly exciting on the activity front. And, you know, <laughs> and those are, yes, and, and if you look at the only example I managed to dredge up of actually a, a, a vertebrate animal that does this, sloths, the, the clues in the name, you know, they sit there getting a bit green and manky and then, uh, and then eating some of their algae. I should stress, I'm not actually sure that sloths eat. There are various theories about this that I've heard, and I've never really looked into it. It's possible that in their grooming, sloths eat some of their algae, and that might be good. It's also possible that by having algae growing in their fur, sloths manage to look green, which is a good strategy for something that's sitting in the canopy of a rainforest with eagles around. But still, as you said, they're called sloths and not zippies or speedies. Zippies are very, very unlikely to be photosynthetic. Looking the other way around, we talked about a few animals that use this photosynthesis. 
Are there any plants that don't? There are plant-like things that don't. I mean, the malaria parasite is a bit like a plant, but it doesn't photosynthesize anymore. But it has what's called a plastid, which is left over from being, at one point, having been a chloroplast. So I don't think there are many things that we'd recognize as plants that don't bother to photosynthesize. I mean, obviously, plants don't photosynthesize all through their life, life cycle, but by and large, that's, that's what it's all about. So, so the point here is that they're really doing the planet a tremendous favor, maybe not is not the right word, but they're doing something. It's a very important process what they're doing. They are at the base of every food chain. Even though they're not screaming for any attention or credit. No, but you know, I was uh, I was on the Pacific Coast earlier today, and there was some there were some big old trees there that were certainly sort of like commanding my respect. And I'm not saying that I'm not respecting this very nice pot plant on the uh, on, on the table here, but uh, but. You know, everything that eats has to eat something else, and eventually there's a plant at the bottom of at the end of that list. Fact, and they it? have eaten the sun. That's that's why the title of the book, that at the end of every food chain there's a plant, and before that plant there's just sunlight. So you say in your book that um, the human race would not exist if it were no, for plants. Uh, you, you and I would not be here sitting with not. these plants. We would not. No, the, there would be a, a huge amount of absence on the planet, uh, including our own. You can imagine that there could be a planet that doesn't have plants. Uh, you can imagine a planet where everything's basically a microbe. But there's a fairly good argument that any large, complicated creature, plant or animal, needs to have oxygen around, and you won't have oxygen without the plants. So when people talk about looking for, looking, looking for uh, signs of life on planets around other stars... The, the thing that they are most often thinking about is looking for some way of showing that there's oxygen in the atmosphere, which is not a surefire um, sign of life, but it's a very strong indicator. And finally, what is your opinion of the, the benefit of talking to your plants, as some people do, to their potted plants? I think the benefits of talking to a potted plant are almost entirely felt by the talker, not the plant. But uh, it is true that if you talk to plants, you may be less likely to forget to water them. Water is, 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 I think, the thing that plants crave more than conversation. So speaking of which... Since I haven't we're, watered this plant. You have not. I was going to say we're winding up this discussion. I wonder if you could, wouldn't mind just taking the rest of your water there and maybe just watering that plant. Okay. Yes, doesn't that feel good? You've got yeah, your plant pulling up that water, pulling it up from the roots, pulling it out into its leaves. It's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to see, except we can't really see it. It still just looks like a plant. But... This is why science is about the imagination. You should be able to now look at a plant in a different way, see the stuff inside. Oliver Morton, thank you very much for talking to us. It was a great pleasure. Well, that's interesting, Molly. Okay, I'll let this little plant be. I'll have to check out Oliver Morton's book about these green critters. It's called Eating the Sun, How Plants Power the Planet. And if it weren't such a recent publication, Seth, I would assume that we'd find it down here, perhaps next to this collection of Time Life books. Yeah, well, the operators have been standing around for so long, Molly, I've, I felt I owed them something. Hey, let's see if this uh, electrical outlet over here works. Can you uh, plug this cord in here? Yeah, sure. Okay, now I might be able to oh. right, turn on that light. All right. Oh, I just put my hand through a cobweb. Yeah, I have some interesting tapes here. Tapes? Tapes, not CDs. Nope. At least CDs. Not 8-track, you sure? Stone tablets, maybe? <laughs> no, thank you. Real tapes. I mean, real recording, so to speak. Recordings I was given by Fred Sharp, who studies whales and dolphins with the Alaska Whale Foundation. Actually, dolphins are whales, and, and they're both cetaceans. And they're very intelligent animals. Very intelligent. And that's the point. Studying how they communicate may give us clues as to how intelligent 
intelligent aliens might communicate, or at least how we might exchange information with them. I mean, until we find intelligence on another world, we can at least study the other intelligent species on this one. So what do you have here on this on this tape? You really well, want to play it down here? Yeah, yeah. I think this is a tape of a humpback whale making social calls. So you're going to play it on this little weird recording machine? It's not weird. <laughs> Talk about a candidate for a museum. All right, let me see. I'll, I'll just put the reel down. Punch play. Humpback whale, and you can hear the range of sounds it uses to communicate. Researchers aren't always sure what it's saying, of course, but they eventually hope to understand. There's definitely meaning in those sounds. Well, I'm not sure it's widely known just how intelligent these animals are. You know, when we see them, it's usually at an aquarium or sea world, that type of place where they're entertaining humans, or they make the news like that orca whale did when it killed its trainer. Oh, yeah, I know. That was a really sad story. But when I spoke to whale researcher Fred Sharp about communication with whales, I asked him whether this sort of behavior by orcas was unusual. I don't think so. In fact, I'm surprised that it doesn't happen more often. You are putting these very wide-ranging wild animals that have long, complex lives and different types of food that they feed on, and to bring them into these captive environments, inevitably there's going to be times when they're frustrated, we can't understand them, and uh, it's remarkable how well the, the industry does in preventing these type of accidents, but I think it comes with the territory. So we shouldn't uh, sort of impugn some sort of malevolence on the part of the animal here. It wasn't that it was just cheesed off at this particular person. It wasn't that uh, it felt mistreated, or, or can we not assume that? I mean, can we get into their minds in any sense and, and find some sort of intent? I think the trainer who tragically perished would be the first to tell you that she would not want you to have any uh, uh, malevolent feelings towards these animals. She knew the dangers better than anyone. She loved these animals dearly. Trainers and their captive subjects can form very beautiful bonds, but it's one of the reasons why we love these animals. They're so complex, we can't always get into their hearts and heads. These animals, in this case killer whales, are, of course, uh, judged to be very intelligent. They, they exhibit the kinds of behaviors that we associate with intelligence. Maybe you could describe what what sort of things these animals do that, you know, your average uh, beef cattle do not do. Uh, Killer whales are are very long-lived. They lived in very uh, complex social groupings. They have a very amazing communication systems. They're highly encephalized. They have very large brains. They have individual dialects within populations. They feed on a remarkable variety of prey that they specialize on. And in many ways, there's still a lot we don't know about these animals. And and I know that they're not always predictable, and particularly when you bring them into captive environments where they could be growing more frustrated by their surroundings. That sounds like uh, maybe the story of the elephants in circuses. At first you go because most people have never seen an elephant. If you grew up in rural Indiana in the 1800s, you probably had never seen an elephant. No opportunity for that. And, but now, of course, there's a fairly strong movement to get such creatures out of the circuses simply because we recognize that uh, elephants want to do their elephant thing. I so agree with you, and I think in many ways the first contact is not necessarily going to come from the cosmos, but from the beautiful animals that we share this planet with. Let me follow up a bit on that, Fred. Do you think we'll ever be able to understand what creatures such as dolphins or, for that matter, these whales or or, or other intelligent species are saying to one another? Because there have been studies that suggest what they're, they're not just making sounds. There's, there's some element of language in that, and, uh, of course, we don't understand it yet. Indeed. I guess I wouldn't be in the business if I didn't believe that we could gain some ground on understanding these magnificent beings. And yeah, I'm I'm very optimistic that we're going to find that they have very complex communication systems and there's a lot of information being exchanged. 
The channel capacity of the oceans is huge for the amount of information. They communicate at subsonic speeds. They have extremely diverse vocalizations. I concur it's in its infancy, but I think we're in for some really wonderful surprises in the near future. When you say diverse vocalizations, do you mean diverse across the spectrum of all marine mammals or just among groups within a single species? Killer whales uniquely share with human that regularly interacting populations will maintain their individual dialects. They maintain their acoustic distinctiveness, and that's so far only known in other human beings. So it's a sign that they possess some potentially amazing intelligence and a beauty to recognize each other and certainly other members of other local populations. And one of the problems is, is that when you put these animals together, one may be collected from Iceland, one may be collected from the coast of BC, one may be collected from Antarctica, you're throwing very different ethnicities and ecologies together, and so there's bound to be some stresses. Sounds uh, very analogous to what happens with humans. Indeed. So you say dialects. It, it, it sounds like uh, you know the, the difference between somebody who grew up in Brooklyn and somebody who grew up in uh, Arizona. I mean, do you mean like that, simply the same sounds pronounced differently, inflected differently, or do you mean that they use, if you will, different words, if I can use that term? It's hard to say if they're words, but we do know that they have a different repertoire of calls and that these calls do sound differently that these pods may interact with each other and occupy the same habitat, but when they get back into their own distinctive clans, they maintain their vocal distinctiveness. It would be like uh, going to the ball game and interacting with your fellow ethnicities, um, scientists, uh, our hillbillies like ourselves, meeting, uh, meeting other folks, um, but yet we maintain our, our own special drawl. I, I would think that that would have some survival value because you could always recognize the locals. Uh, and, and so it's a mechanism that maybe helps uh, you distinguish somebody who's trying to muscle in on, on your clan, as it were. Absolutely. And many of the killer whales that we have in our local waters, they maintain these specific clans and they appear to run the non-locals out of town. So you bet it probably has some very adaptive value. Fred Sharp, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, Seth. Well, Seth, let's get these tapes back to Fred Sharp at his stomping grounds at the Alaska Whale Foundation and get to tracking down that computer that you say you've been looking for. It's called the IMSAI. IMSAI. IMSAI 8080. One of the first Mm -hmm. personal computers, Molly. It had a classic 8-bit, 1 megahertz processor. Classic. I had to (laughs) solder it together myself. Had a nifty control panel with paddle switches and LED displays. And frankly, it was the last personal computer I've had that I really understood. It's got to be around here somewhere. Maybe maybe it's next to that teletype machine over there or the cotton gin in the corner. Yep, there's a lot of old stuff down here. A lot of it's odd. And it's all in Seth's crawl space on Are We Alone? Okay, Seth, we've been rooting around in this crawl space for almost an hour. I don't think I'll ever stand upright again fully. Well, it's back. not called an upright space, Molly. But really, thanks for helping me out. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm sure my MSI 8080 is here, and once we find it, we can take it to the Computer History Museum in Mountain View to take its proud place and be up close and personal with other pioneering personal computers, such as the, the Kim and the Commodore Pet. Before the, the I'm say 8080 was the I'm say 8079? The answer to that is no. <laughs> Well, at any rate, I could never remember those names. I'm not even sure I was alive then. Oh, you made. no, you were alive, Molly. This was the 1970s. Okay, got it. Maybe I was alive. But, you know, I remember when we toured the Computer History Museum, Seth, and you pointed out these computers that were much older, back when computers took up a whole wall. Well, that's right. That's when computers were anything but personal. 
Okay, we're coming to a room called Visible Storage. Visible Storage. What does invisible storage look like? I I think that's when you have a secret basement laboratory behind a a mantle or a fireplace or something like that. I think no one actually knows what it looks like. Oh, look at this. These are computers. Yep, all your favorite personal computers from (laughs) yesteryear. (laughs) There's an old Apple II and there's the first Macintosh. Hey, a pet computer. I remember those. An Altair 8800. Ooh. Okay, so what we have in front of us are just rows and rows of computers up on shelves. Uh, computers that most of these I, I've never seen. Some of them, so the Apple looks familiar. I remember my dad had one of those. In here they also have some of the software programs. Space Invaders, do you remember that game from Atari? Oh, you bet. I mean, I, 1980s. I, much of my youth, yeah, was spent with that. <laughs> oh, there's the uh, Osborne, the Osborne Personal. That was the first sort of laptop, even though you needed a pretty strong lap to have that on your lap. But, but why in a whole room full of computers do they have, this is the abacus here, they have different models of that here, and, and sectors here that's used for um, measuring angles? Yeah well, yeah, well, indeed, and slide rules. God, I had a slide rule. You must have had slide rules. Well, the abacus, in a, in a way, I mean, it works like a, a computer. Really, it does, except that rather than moving electrons around, you move beads on wires, that's all. It's a, it's a little older technology, a little slower, too. So it looks like the time frame for these computers in front of us are the early 70s, 1970s. Yeah, well, that's because they developed a chip in the mid-1970s. It was the 4004 chip. It was, if you will, a computer on one chip. They put a whole processing unit into one chip, and that was a very big step. That was a a revolutionary step, and that's what led to the development of personal computers. Everybody could have a computer at that point. But there were computers before the personal computer, Seth. I mean, this is what I've read about in history books. Yes, well, I lived it, Molly. Yeah, but of course, of course there were. But, of course, in those days, computers cost tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. The only people that could have them were were universities, research labs for the government, or, or, you know, just big businesses. So if you, if you just come around the corner here, in fact, you can see some of these early... Oh, know, look at these. Okay, so these computers. take up quite a, quite a bit of room, these computers. Look at that. That's half a wall. Yeah, it is. But you see all these glass things sticking out of it? Those are... Right. Tubes. Vacuum tubes. Tubes. Vacuum yep. tubes. Before transistors, yeah. And, you know, the, the first computers, this one goes back to 1954, right? The Electrodata E205. Sounds good. But with all those tubes, the problem was the tubes, you know, they, they last for a few thousand hours and then they burn out. And since there are a few thousand tubes in here, every hour a tube will burn out. And you've got to go find it and fix it. And, you know, that's just not very much fun. So was the com- did the computer chip replace the vacuum tube? Transistors did that. You know, the transistor was invented in 1947, right? In the beginning, it was just sort of an interesting little laboratory device. But by the 1950s, you know, they were commercially manufactured. You could buy transistor radios and things like that. And people realized that, well, transistors don't burn out every few thousand hours. They're much smaller. They take a lot less heat. You don't need a giant power plant to run your computer if you use transistors. And they began to wire transistors into computers. So transistors are what are actually on a a chip, a computer chip. Well, that was the next big step, and that happened in the 1960s when they put a bunch of transistors on a single chip of silicon. They call it a chip. It was literally a chip of silicon. Okay, so that you could get, you know, 16 transistors onto one chip. Obviously, that makes everything a lot smaller. Ah, this is coming towards Moore's Law, this idea that you double your processing power, what, every 12 or 18 months. Well, that's right. As, as Gordon Moore said in the 1960s, and he was the co-founder of the Intel Corporation, he noted that the number of transistors on a chip was doubling every 18 months. And since the processing power is dependent on the number of transistors, 
the processing power was, in fact, doubling every 18 months. Well, here's a timeline here. It says that by the 1970s, 4,500 transistors could fit on a chip. 1980s, 275,000. Uh, let's see, 1990s. Can you guess, Seth? Can, can you read that? Well, I would be millions. Yeah, 3 million, 3 million on one chip. And that brings us to the early part of the 21st century, 592 million transistors on a single chip. What does that mean for processing power? What does that mean for me, the car buyer, or rather the computer buyer? Well, it means your computer can do anything that it can do faster. That's really what it comes down to. This is all about speed. I mean, even the slowest computer could do any calculation you want if you're willing to wait, you know, maybe a few tens of thousands of years. But if you can put, as we can now, a half a billion transistors on one chip and have them all, you know, working as a team, obviously they're going to get your job done a heck of a lot quicker. And really, you don't want to sit there and buff your nails while your computer decides how to uh, process your Word document. That was an interesting trip to the museum, Seth, and now we're back in your crawl space, and I hope we're homing in on your computer, which, as advanced as you say it was in the 1970s, is really ancient history when we think of the sort of processing power that's coming down the line. But can you imagine predicting the computer revolution, or at least imagining where it was headed once the technology was really underway? No, I can't. Well, that's what Nathan Mirvold did in 1995 with Bill Gates in a book called The Road Ahead. Nathan Mirvold was chief technology officer for Microsoft Corporation. In The Road Ahead, he tried to picture the future of computers and software. The leitmotif of that book was the information superhighway. Hey, Seth, I like your framed 2001 movie poster here. That's really classic. You also have Tron. Oh, and Short Circuit. That came out in 1988, right? I don't think I saw that one. So today, what's on people's minds? Computers taking over, maybe? I wondered about that, and I asked Nathan Mirvold how he would write The Road Ahead today in terms of the trajectory of computer evolution and the digital age. You know, I think we can divide that into two categories. There's evolution and revolution. And it's always a little bit of a judgment call to say which is which, but, uh, you know, I think there's a set of things that are over the hill which are the evolution of the Internet as we know it today and the evolution of the computer industry as we know it today. You know, if we look at how the Internet has changed our lives in the last 10 years, the next 10 years it'll change our lives even more. And it's pretty straightforward to see how a bunch of that will happen. Maybe you can give me an example. Of well, right now, the Internet is primarily a text and image resource. Uh, it's also important for downloading music to your iPod or other device. It isn't that much of a video thing. As popular as YouTube is, most people still get more of their video from TV. But that's only a question of technology and a little bit of regulations as to why we're not getting HD quality video from our PCs and from the Internet. We will. That's a simple thing. That's evolution. Revolution is when you come up with new models that really change the way people live and work. One example of this that is not immediate, but I think will ultimately happen, is artificial intelligence. When we can delegate more and more tasks to computers and have computers do things that today we would describe as intelligent, that will be hugely useful. Well, it sounds like, okay, the next step, we can download more video of higher quality. Maybe maybe we're going to kill off the neighborhood multiplex and, and the television industry, but doggone it, everybody will get, at least get the video when they want it and what they want. But some technologists, and Ray Kurzweil comes to mind, point out that a lot of this technological progress is exponential. Well, it's the nature of exponential growth that it leads inevitably to some sort of unpredictable endpoint, and Kurzweil calls that the singularity. 
Maybe the machines take over. Something happens. How do you foresee this? I mean, we say artificial intelligence, but that sounds kind of scary. Well, you know, one of the interesting patterns throughout history is that the question you asked me of what the future of technology has been asked a million times over the last thousand years. Don't mean to put you down as a question asker, but it's not the first time the question was asked. Hey, that's only three times a day. I I don't feel so bad. (laughs) And it turns out that when people answer it, almost always somebody has to get scared of something. And it's almost never worked out to be as bad as they thought. I remember one of the first things I ever saw in computers was a TV special that a very young Walter Cronkite did in the 1960s. And I was a little kid. And Walter Cronkite was interviewing all of these factory workers who were terrified that they were going to lose their jobs to computers. And it was ludicrous. In fact, the technology industry has been enormously enabling to just about everybody. It's made our economy incredibly strong. It has led to huge benefits in the non-technology part of the economy. It's been great, actually. (laughs) So, So Ray has some interesting arguments about the singularity, and it can seem scary. I think almost certainly our ability to fear the unknown is larger than our ability to appreciate that usually these things work out pretty well. Well, that sounds like on the basis of historical analog, we we probably shouldn't be losing sleep over this. But on the other hand, you know, I spend a lot of my day just dealing with email, and our kids spend more than five hours each day looking at a screen, and it's no longer a TV set that they're watching. And I have to say, this sounds to me like a secular change, change that's not going to go away, and that has radically altered my existence and presumably that of the people in the next cube. Yep. <laughs> but is it for the better? Oh, sure it is. Someone will always take a piece of the present that is uh, a recent piece of the present and say, but did we really gain anything? You know, what profiteth a man to gain the whole world but have to do lots of email? Well, <laughs> the answer is, although there can be an annoying aspect of technology, it's uh, almost certainly the case that the technologies that we adopt widely, we adopt widely because we like them. One of the funniest aspects to me is that one of the fears people had a few years ago about the Internet is that everyone would become a couch potato and not connect with people. When, in fact, most of what they spend their time doing is posting on social network sites, sending emails, sending text messages. They're all doing things that are about connecting with people fundamentally. All right. Uh, Let me be optimistic here for a moment about the present and and also be optimistic about this show and assume that, you know, somebody still listening to this interview 100 years from now will run it again uh, or 50 years from now. What do you see is happening then? We're not talking about, you know, everybody can get video on their iPhone or anything. We're talking about something really different. Right. Are are we in the process of inventing our successors? Is Homo sapiens going to yield its place of intellectual superiority on this planet within a century or or will we? Well, so when people ask questions like that, I like to point out, are humans the strongest things on this planet? The answer is certainly not. And in fact, almost all of our hard labor is done by machines. A bulldozer can dig a whole lot faster than you or I can. Similarly, computers are already much smarter than I am for all kinds of problems. They can multiply way better than I can multiply. Computers can search through data way better than I can search through data. Over time, what technology has done is it has shrunk the realm of things where people are the best way to do it. And I think going forward, that's surely going to happen. 
So uh, a tremendous amount of not only menial labor, but I think a tremendous amount of routine decisions are all going to be handled by computers 50 or 100 years from now. And in fact, in that time frame, I would expect that we can create computers that have what we call general intelligence that are smarter than we are. I don't find that threatening. I mean, it turns out there are people that are smarter than me. I am not scared of a world in which humans are not the smartest things on the planet. There's another interesting thing. So in the next 50 to 100 years, there's a reasonable chance, although it's not certain, that we will find convincing proof of extraterrestrial intelligence. How does that change things here on Earth? We probably wouldn't be smarter than any civilization we found. Well, which is another interesting aspect of it. Now, should we sit here and be terrified of that? Or should we step boldly forward and try to either prove it or disprove it? I think we should, and I think that's why SETI is such an important uh, activity. Well, you know where I stand. Uh, (laughs) Finally, Nathan, I think that there's a tendency to imagine that any intelligent species anywhere would sooner or later reach levels of technological sophistication comparable to our own. But is that so inevitable in your view? Are iPods and laptops an inevitable consequence of intelligence? (laughs) Well, I think to have laptops, you have to have a lap. (laughs) And it's unclear that aliens will have a lap that's very much like ours. (laughs) But this is one of the great questions that SETI will ultimately answer, is how many of these things are inevitable. I think that the safe assumption, in my view, is to say, actually, yes, most of them are inevitable. That intelligence is an inevitable thing for life to evolve. Maybe not everywhere, maybe not quickly. But it certainly is possible, and it happened relatively quickly here on Earth. The human level of intelligence is unique on Earth, of course, but there's a lot of smart animals. And if there were no humans, some other animal would continue to evolve towards higher and higher intelligence because dogs and pigs and chimpanzees and dolphins and even squid and octopus, cuttlefish, are pretty smart. And so it's been so broadly useful in so many different ecosystems, it'd be hard for me to believe that this is a a strange case. It would be more easy for me to believe that it is a common situation that intelligence is selected for. Nathan Mirvold, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today. Okay, well, thank you. Well, Seth, it sounded like you had fun talking to Nathan Mirvold. I did, and he would appreciate my finding this. Yep. It oh. looks like it. Oh, good. Yep, 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 yep. It's, it's uh, my MSI 8080. This is Open great. It up here. Yeah. Don't, don't damage it. Ah. Yeah, well, this is great. The Computer History Museum is going to be mighty excited because I don't think they have this model. Is that a computer or is it an airline flight panel? Well, it's it was huge. advertised as a rugged, professional, affordable, personal it, computer. <laughs> it would crush your lap. Well, it's not a laptop. It's not intended for laps. The point was this was really a well-engineered personal computer, and it was built to last much longer than the technology actually warranted. <laughs> well, while you admire that and box it back up, I'll grab this light... And thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. And the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. We're looking for life elsewhere in the universe means understanding its technological evolution, among other things. Okay, Molly, let's go. I'm just curious, Seth, how much disk space did this thing have? What, hard disk space? There were no hard disks for small computers back then, Molly. Well, then how do you store things? Well, obviously, Molly, on a small cassette tape. Molly, wait, 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 wait. Where's the cassette adapter for this thing? Oh, do we really need it? Are you kidding? Without that storage hardware, this is just a boat anchor. we got to get back under into that crawl space. Okay, I'll go only on one condition. Yeah, what's that? Can I have that battery-operated pasta maker? 
Does it make anything other than Rotelli? <laughs> 